Hello, this is episode 239 and in it, I'm speaking with Hamish White from Sanctum Homes, which is a Melbourne-based building business specialising in passive house, sustainable and high-performing homes. So if you're considering a passive house or you're already designing one in the process of making one happen for your future home, or you simply want to know more about the non-negotiables in building a high-performance, comfortable and sustainable home, I know you're going to find this episode really helpful. And also, if you're interested in building with structural insulated panels or SIPs, Uh, or you've been investigating hempcrete as an alternative as well, then definitely stay tuned. We've got loads of information over both this episode and the next episode about these products and about working with them. You're also going to hear how powerful it can be to have a builder involved in the pre-construction phase because Hamish talks through the way that they make this work with their clients at Sanctum Homes. And as I said earlier, my conversation with Hamish is going to be shared across this and the next episode. So be sure to stay tuned for both part one and part two. We'll dive into part one now. And if you'd like to grab a full transcript of this episode, plus information on the resources that we discuss, you can do all of that by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 239. That's the numbers 239. Now let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. And I recognize the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies, and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers, and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses, and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect, and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building, and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about levelling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take and the best way to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. Before we jump into part one of my conversation with Hamish, let me introduce you to him and to Sanctum Homes. Hamish White, Director of Sanctum Homes, is registered in the class of Domestic Builder Unlimited, which is the highest domestic building license available. And this enables Sanctum Homes to manage all responsibilities and aspects for carrying out all components of domestic building work for clients. 
Hamish started his education at La Trobe University with a business and marketing degree, believe it or not. And after completing this, he quickly realised that being stuck in an office was not for him. So he started his carpentry and building journey at age 23. With a wide variety of domestic building projects behind him and a keen interest in sustainable building, Hamish brings to any project years of experience and an excellence in project management covering workflow, quality control, cost management and viable sustainable processes. Sanctum Homes take a collaborative approach, working with you to create an innovative space tailor-made to your needs. They build, extend and renovate beautiful, high-performing, energy-efficient homes. And they also specialise in awesome relationships with their clients, architects, designers, trades, suppliers and their own team. Sanctum Homes are Passive House Certified Tradespersons, HIA Green, Green Smart Professionals and they're based in Warrandyte, Victoria. Hamish is also a founding member of Builders Declare. And if you haven't heard of Builders Declare before, I've I've talked about it a few times on the podcast uh, and on undercover architect platforms generally. But if you're not aware of it, make sure you check it out. Builders Declare is a collection of building industry professionals who acknowledge the climate and biodiversity emergency and the impact that the construction industry has on the environment. And Build Declare, Builders Declare members pledge to raise awareness, advocate for faster change and work with clients to create buildings that are high performance, require minimal, en- minimal energy input, are low in carbon and use ecologically sustainable development principles in their construction practices and finished projects. Now, as a founding member of Builders Declare, Hamish is hoping to encourage other builders and tradespeople to build better homes and be more mindful of the environment. Now, I first came across Hamish and Sanctum Homes via social media, as you do mostly these days, and specifically Sanctum Homes' Instagram account. The post that they, that Hamish has there, they do a really great job of describing various building practices and why Sanctum Homes use these in their homes, especially when they're seeking to achieve high performance, thermal comfort and long-term durability. Hamish and I ended up striking up a conversation over social media, really over that shared goal to educate and increase sustainability in the environment, in the built environment. And it's been awesome to see the work that he and other builders are doing as part of Builders Declare. And also earlier this year, Hamish actually joined Live Life Builds group mastermind program, Elevate. So that's where Dwayne and I work with builders to help them improve their projects, business and life. And so I've got to know Hamish better there because he's been learning what we share inside Elevate about how to improve his projects and his building business, which is um, awesome. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this conversation with you because Hamish, he does not hold back. He's got a lot of detail about building for climate, about building with SIPs or structural insulated panels, and also about achieving great outcomes in your project and the relationship that you can have with your team. And as a reminder, you can download a free PDF transcript of this episode and links that we mention, all the resources that we speak about, Uh, And I've got all of those available for you at www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 239. That's the numbers 239. Well, Hamish, it's fantastic to have you here on the podcast. I am super excited about introducing you to the Undercover Architect community. Uh, There's some Undercover Architect community members, I know Home Method members who already know who you are because they've been following you on Instagram. I think some of them even got in touch with you about building their home. So it's really lovely to have you here and be... uh, be able to chat with you about how you build and the the different uh, ways that you go about creating high performance homes. I think um, for my mind, a lot of the work that 
that you do in the way that you try and educate homeowners about why you do the things that you do is fantastic. Your Instagram account, your social media does have that very strong education tilt to it, which is awesome because it just gives people so much information about what they need to look out for regardless of who they're working with. So I know it's a really great resource for loads of people who might not even be considering using if you're building their home. Um, and you're incredibly passionate about this stuff too, which we're going to dive into more on the podcast as well. Passionate about sustainability, about building sustainable homes. So yeah, really, really excited to have you here. Can we kick off by you just sharing a little bit uh, about yourself, about how you got into building and how you started Sanctum Homes? Thanks, Emily. Thanks for having me on too. Um, I'm super excited about coming on here. I've been listening to Undercover Architect for a while now um, and full disclosure I'm also doing the Elevate um, course with you and Dwayne which I'm finding incredibly valuable so thank you for the work that you guys do. Um, so my journey into building started uh, a little bit later than I guess you would traditionally see. Um, I didn't do a trade, uh, I didn't leave school and do, a, do my trade. I actually went to university and studied a Bachelor of Business in Marketing and Tourism uh, and then decided pretty quickly that I didn't want to do that. Um, and I found <laughs> myself um, travelling overseas for three or four years. Um, and during that time, actually during university, I did labour for a few of my uh, friends' dads who were builders. Um, and a lot of my friends are in the trade. So I did quite a, well, a little bit of that during my time at university. But when I was overseas, I got in with a couple of builders in Northern America and did, worked on some pretty interesting homes in Whistler, where I stayed for a couple of years. And, and it was during that time working there that I really, it, it was clear in my mind that carpentry and building was something that I really enjoyed doing and something I was quite good at. Uh, and it just made sense to me. Um, not saying I wasn't studious at school, but um, building was one of the things that I, I could go on a building site and I could just understand how things go together. It just, how my brain worked, it just, it made sense. So when my girlfriend, who is now my wife, came back from uh, overseas, I actually met my wife in Canada. She's from Canberra, ironically. Um, <laughs> I decided to really dive headfirst into building and construction and just started labouring. Um, I have done half my diploma in construction. I stopped doing that um, because my intention of doing the diploma was to try and get my building license and realize that I didn't necessarily need that at the time so I just did my certificate for um, while just working on site with a number of different builders. Fast forward four or five years I the first time that I went to go for my building license I actually failed due to um, inexperience and uh, <laughs> as at that point that I actually started a partnership uh, with another friend of mine um, and I, our, our values didn't quite align from a sustainability point of view so we both um, decided to move on um, at that point um, you know we still we still get on it's fine there was no bad blood there um, and then we started Sanctum Homes with uh, the view that we wanted to be sustainable builders and if I'm being brutally honest, we kind of floated, floated along like that for a while, not really having a clear direction of what that actually meant to be a sustainable builder. And that's when I discovered Passive House. Um, and if you want me to dive into that story, I, I can. 
So a, a quite a good friend of mine, or sorry, I met Sven Maxa from Maxa Design through the CrossFit gym that I train at. We both train at. Wow, what a small world. <laughs> very small world, very small world. I actually know that him and Dwayne are looking at a project together at the moment, which is pretty cool. Uh, I actually reached out to both of them on the weekend about that. <laughs> awesome. In fact, Sven designed my home, which I'm looking at right now from my back office. Fantastic. Yeah, so Sven told me about Passive House and I, I jumped online that night and Googled it and I thought this is pretty cool and then noticed that there was um, a course coming up. I think it was within two weeks and I'd literally booked in and next minute I was sitting in a class listening to Burkhard um, from Carbon Light talk about Passive House and within 30 seconds I was absolutely hooked. It just made complete sense that we should be building homes like this that are tested and measured and followed a very specific recipe on how to put them together. Fast forward three or four years from that point there, and basically our whole business is tailored around building passive house and high-performance homes, and here we are. Yeah, that's fantastic. Thank you so much for that introduction. And it's really interesting to see that you started your business with that sustainability tilt in mind. I understand your wife's actually an ecologist. Is that, that correct? She, she, she is an ecologist and, and now um, works for a landscape design company where she's essentially come on as a junior landscape designer and they, they basically specialise in um, native and Indigenous gardens. Oh, how awesome. There's really great synergy between the two businesses. So we actually do a few projects together, which is pretty cool. That's exciting. So obviously that's, you know, it's a core value value for you as a couple and a family and for that to then be in your business and then realizing that perhaps you weren't investigating it or living it through your business as much as you uh, knew you were or thought you were and then to find Passive House. And I've, you know, that's a very common story. I think when I know that when I saw Passive House and I first started having conversations about it, that whole opportunity for it to be the way that you could design something, model the design, and then have the as-built version, uh, you know, certified against that design version is just so powerful and something that's so missing from our conventional construction methodology, particularly in residential construction. So, um, and like you, I met my Australian husband traveling overseas as well. So (laughs) 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 I met my husband, we were both camp counselors in a, in a summer camp in the North of New York state. So (laughs) not not a, not a too dissimilar uh, uh, meeting by the same (laughs) time. So now you said you do passive house and uh, high performance homes. So my experience with a lot of the people that I work with is that they really love passive house, but for some reason or another, it doesn't, it's, it, they don't go the full path of getting the certified passive house. They use the passive house principles or they really seek to do solar passive and high performance. Look at the, you know, their air tightness, their insulation, those kinds of things. What do you find is sort of the decider for people in terms of the conversations that are happening? Because you also get involved during pre-construction. We'll talk a bit more about that in a minute, but you're obviously getting to meet people sort of early in the process and help them sort of understand whether Passive House is the option or whether to just um, be looking at a non-certified but using similar principles. Do you see that that decision made is made largely by them in terms of a budget point? Is it the house? Is it their personal values? Like how do you see the choice being made between whether they do do Passive House certified or they try and achieve as much as they can without the certification? It's a good question. 
our approach to all our projects is, you know, if we put passive house as the gold standard of what we're trying to achieve, um, and then knowing if we fall a little bit below that, then we're still delivering a really fantastic high-performing home um, in it from an energy consumption and comfort and health point of view. Um, I might just quickly touch on the five principles of passive house firstly, and that is continuous thermal insulation, like good quality thermal insulation, and that's continuous from either under slab or under subfloor walls and roof. We've then got a uh, high-performing airtight uh, window suite and that's depending on your climate double or triple glazed but minimum triple glaze uh, double glazed um, and they're thermal bridge free uh, the third component is uh, thermal bridge free construction um, so we're trying to eliminate steel members from inside to outside or windows that conduct heat so aluminium and steel windows are a good example of them uh, and then we want to make these buildings airtight um, passive house uh, certification is 0 0.60 air changes per hour and if you put that into context I believe CSIRO did a study a number of years back where the average Australian home was sitting at about 15 or 17 air changes. Yeah right and up to 41 yeah the range is 15 to 41 it's crazy well, it's a big difference it, isn't it yeah. <laughs> so. whatever, whatever it is the, the amount of volume of your entire home that air is changing naturally without any active ventilation or you're opening up a window or door, um, is, air, energy is just leaking out of the home. So you imagine you're sitting there trying to cool, heat and cool it in a summer or winter and you're just constantly having to pump heat energy or into that home to have it at a comfortable temperature. And then because we're making the, these buildings airtight, we're introducing a centralised heat recovery ventilation system. Now that's in our climate. We're based down in Melbourne. As you kind of, as you head up north, North of Sydney, you're probably going to want to be doing an energy recovery ventilation system. Um, and I probably can't speak too much of them because I don't have experience on them, but it does do a similar uh, thing um, up in the northern areas of Australia. It's managing more humidity, whereas down in, in, a, in the colder climates, it's um, just managing um, the air inside the building. So bringing fresh air and, and taking out the used air in your wet areas and your um, laundry your bathrooms your kitchen and stuff like that so we're trying to constantly approach all our buildings with those five principles in mind passive house has some very strict parameters that operates within for project to be certified um, it talks about heat loads and cooling loads so um, anything below 15 kilowatt hours it meets passive house certification and again to put that into context and Amelia, you could probably speak a little bit more about this, but like an average Australian home is over 200 kilowatt hours per square metre. So passive house is, is incredibly low. Um, passive house does, has, does have another class, which is PHI low energy home. So passive house institute low energy home. And the parameter is a little bit uh, looser and you can go up to 30. But if you compare that to an average home that's 150, 200, 250, kilowatt hours to heat and cool or, or, or have that home at a comfortable temperature, um, they're worlds apart. Um, and with passive house, you know, as I said, you want to make it airtight. Um, so, we're, you know, keeping it at 0.6 air changes an hour. And that's a really, really, really 
tight building. And then we're managing um, that fresh air inside with that centralised HRV system. So all our projects are approached with that, these principles in mind. Um, obviously, we'd love to get all our projects certified. Um, sometimes it's just not practicable and it might be orientation of the block and it might be the size of the home that they want. You know, the view might be out to the east and that's letting too much morning sun in. Um, or there might be a view out to the south that they want to try and capture. Um, so we understand that sometimes design considerations and how people want to work within the home are also important. So we're, we're encouraging our clients when they're making these decisions to make decisions based off some data. Um, and we would typically encourage our clients to um, run the design of the home through the passive house modeling, and that's the PHPP, so passive house planning package. Um, and that inputs a whole bunch of uh, wall build-ups and window sizes and window suites and um, uh, methodologies, whether it's slab on ground or on subfloor and all that kind of stuff. And obviously, most importantly, puts the climate data into the PHPP. Um, and that would generally give us projected um, kilowatt usages to keep the home at a temperate really comfortable range and that's between 22 to 25 degrees year round um, and we might find that a particular design that's 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 meeting um, some of the design requirements that the clients are after take it outside of what passive house allows it to be um, and we're fine with that that's totally cool but we just want to make sure that the decisions that are being made by the client are based off some real data and that they're accepting that as they move forward. Um, but, but the beauty about getting the passive house planning package, even if it's just that preliminary um, assessment, they can formulate their decisions based off how, you know, a different window suite or a different wall build up or a different size window is going to affect how each room or different rooms are going to perform at any time of the day or even any time of the year. Um, and it might also formulate some, you know, external shading design ideas or trees or deciduous trees or anything like that. Um, so do we just build passive house? No, um, but all our buildings we would consider to be high performance. Um, and I guess as long as it's ticking, you know, our philosophy in Sanctum Homes and is to build beautiful, high-performing, energy-efficient homes, um, then we're happy to, you know, take on any project that ticks that. But, you know, Passive House is the gold standard for us and we'd love to build just Passive House. Yeah, I thank you for that detailed run through because I think that really frames for people understanding. Um, I, I know that there would be people who would just dismiss Passive House because they think it would be too stringent. But if they understand the core principles of it, and of course, you know, there's upcoming proposed changes to the National Construction Code that at the time of recording this have not been um, have not been fully gazetted, but uh, that if there's less than five air changes per hour in a home, that it's going to require a um, mechanical recovery ventilation system in it. So there's air tightness and managing, making sure that we don't just create airtight eskies that then become problems for people in terms of their own health and well-being and, you know, creating condensation in homes and things like that. I think that 
it's really great because I know particularly the undercover architect community are really wrapping their heads around all of these different uh, components of creating good quality building envelopes, thermally comfortable homes. It's not, you know, orientation plays a really large part of it, but then also the building skin, the way that's constructed and getting that data, which you can access through that PHPP modeling is so powerful for then you to be able to make informed decisions about, you know, what is the true heating and cooling load on this home based on how I'm designing it. And the more you can actually do with the building fabric and with the position of windows and the size of windows and the shading of windows and really understanding your, the unique inherent qualities of your site as well, the better position you are to then uh, go in eyes wide open to making informed decisions about where you spend your budget and do you spend it on the investment in the house or do you know that at certain times of the year you're going to be spending it on running you know, air conditioning uh, or making decisions around how you're going to heat and cool the home. And then what does that, you know, how do you balance those those uh, investments up front versus the long-term spend? You know, how does that work for you overall? So I think it's great that you really help uh, clients navigate that. And of course, um, this is happening through that pre-construction process. And so I'm wondering if we can sort of talk a little bit about that and also how that then starts to extend into material choices and those kinds of things, because you are a builder that does SIPs or structurally insulated panels. You're also uh, building uh, with hempcrete at the moment. I've, I believe it's the the first hempcrete home in Victoria, is it? Is that or in, in well, Melbourne? Or? If, if, um, if we can get it down to 0.6 air changes an hour, it will be the first certified hemcrete passive house in Australia and New Zealand from what we understand and then I think there might be a handful in the world yeah so, so that's super exciting in terms of what that presents so exciting but, exciting and stressful yeah but, um, <laughs> <laughs> we've uh, yeah those blower door tests have not been <laughs> no, I, I, I have I have I have red door anxiety um to be honest <laughs> with you that's, that's the color of the blower door um look we're, we're, we're so close on that project um there's a couple of things to unpack there I might just touch on um one particular example where we found that the PHPP analysis has been incredibly beneficial for some clients of ours decision making. Um, we're hopefully starting later on this year, we are starting whether it's this year or early next year, um, two passive house projects side by side on one block, which we've been working with the clients and the designers for a number of months now. Um, one of the homes fits very snugly within the Passive House certification. So Passive House Classic, um, so it's, I think it's 14.3 kilowatt hours um, of energy to, you know, to keep it a table, uh, stable temperature, whereas the other home um, was sitting around 17. Now, both are certifiable buildings. One's a um, Passive House Classic, the other one's a PHI Low Energy Home, which I touched on before. Now, we quickly ran a few numbers of how we could get the home that wasn't quite meeting the standards uh, to get it over the line, to get, to, get, to, get it, to get us to below 15 kilowatt hours. And it was roughly about an additional $30,000 of investment in better windows. Um, and we also did run, it, ran a very crude calculation on how much energy you would actually save the client per year. And it was the difference of $50 between both buildings 
So we wow. gave all that information back to the client and we gave our opinion on what they should do and it wasn't to try and go to Passive House Classic because if you look at the buyback period of $30,000 over $50 savings every year, it just didn't make sense. And, you know, you would live and feel exactly the same in both homes. It was a family that's building them, so um, an auntie and um, her nephew and his family um, next door to each other. So they'll be frequenting each other's houses very regularly. So And they would never know except for the plaque on the wall that mm -hmm. one's different to the other. Um, now, one of the other great things that the designer did, they slightly tweaked the design a little bit uh, and, and gave one of the homes a little bit more northern light because uh, there was an issue of um, heating demand. So uh, what we mean in that situation is it takes more heat than is allowed in passive house requirements to get it at that stable temperature of 22 to 25 degrees. That's one of the parameters that passive house works within. By just losing a little bit of room in the front bedroom and getting a little bit of northern light um, through a highlight window, we're able to get both homes to um, passive house without much more um, investment. And I guess that's the beauty of working collaboratively through pre-construction. Um, I know you guys do the pack process and we have a similar process as well. And, and again, I'm very excited to compare the two and hopefully make ours a better process as well. Um, but we've been working with these clients for well over 12 months now with the designer and, and, and kicking around our ideas, making ourselves available to the design team during um, construction, uh, during pre-construction. We've gone out and done a whole bunch of site investigations. There's a flood zone there. So we're kicking a few ideas around about whether it's uh, a slab or timber subfloor, which we're still working through given the cost of timber at the moment and the availability of um, LVLs uh, versus concrete, which is reasonably readily available. Um, and it's just trying to work out the cost between the two and whether or not one's better than the other. Um, and we'll run through that analysis over the next few months with them to work out which one's going to be the most economical, sustainable, and um, which one's going to have the best impact on the performance of the home. Yeah, because of course, once you're making those decisions, then that needs to be fed back through that PHP, HPP modelling, doesn't it? Because the way that a concrete floor would impact the modelling would be different to a suspended timber floor with underfloor insulation. So, um, so that 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 interactive, collaborative nature of you being able to provide input on cost and buildability, you know, and strategies around what that might mean for the construction and the timelines and uh, and the costs overall, and then the thermal uh, impact of those decisions. And also, I suppose, the homeowner then might make different decisions about what the floor covering might be based on whether it was a concrete slab on ground versus a suspended timber floor structure. So, um, so all of those kinds of things, you know, if that's not happening at the design phase, that can cause a lot of headaches when you're going into contract and, um, and you've already got all of your documentation and all of your modeling done and everything finished and sorted. So, I mean, and I touched on it, um, at the, the lead of the question was, you know, um, the, when you do are exploring different materials, so you're doing this hempcrete home, you've also got the, you've, you're doing structurally insulated panels or SIPs. And do you do conventional construction as well? You know, brick veneer or lightweight, you know, lightweight FC cladding and those kinds of things. Do you build homes from that kind of stuff anymore or are you largely SIPs and 
Yeah, so we, we don't do a lot of brick veneer. Um, uh, we, I kind of try and steer our clients away from that. And it's probably a whole another discussion on thermal mass and where the thermal mass should be with inside the um, building fabric. Um, be better to have the thermal mass inside the building to help regulate temperature. So, yeah, my personal view is that brick veneer, the bricks are on the wrong side of the wall um, for my liking. But we do do typical stick built homes, but we'll always run the analysis on, you know, is a 140 mil stud wall um, cost comparative to a 165 mil sit wall, um, which gives us a very similar R value. And there are a whole range of different decisions that go into going one way or the other. Some are environmental, some are availability. Obviously, the almighty cost comes into it as well. And we're finding that SIPs construction, which we love, where we've done a few of them now. I'm looking at one right now. Our extension was a SIP building. We're doing a, we've got two on a construction at the moment. Just the speed at which we can get a really airtight, well-insulated building envelope um, during SIPs, you know, using SIPs construction is almost a no-brainer. And if I just touch on airtightness for a second, the hemp home that we're building, which we're, I want to say, struggling to get airtight because we're at 0.67 air changes an hour, which is still incredibly tight. It's so close, isn't it? It's, so, <laughs> it's agonising. It's so close. <laughs> it's a, it, you know what? It's a, it's a whole other podcast talking about that project. Um, I will touch on it, though. We're, versus the SIP homes. Um, so we've just recently tested another one. Uh, and we got 0.36 air changes an hour and, you know, it was really straightforward to get that. Um, just the way that the, that the panels are, um, you know, 12 mil OSB internally and externally and then 100, I think it's 140 mil of EPS foam core inside. That whole panel is essentially airtight, like that whole, yeah, the, that panel member is all airtight. Uh, and then we'll just go through and tape all the joins. The, one of the biggest advantages for us is, as I touched on before, is, is how quick it is to install. You know, we're putting buildings up within two weeks and getting it wrapped with our external membranes. And it's, the building fabric's essentially watertight. And, you know, knowing that the size of the openings um, are all you know, as per documented, we can then pre-order all our windows and doors and have the timing and sequencing done. So, you know, the structure goes up, the windows arrive, we store the windows, glass goes in, you know, we've got an, a weather-tight building envelope. And what we have been doing recently, in fact, I've got it literally going on right now, is I've got guys putting cladding on outside and then a team inside doing some internal rough-ins. Um, so there's definitely some, some, some pros for it, but I also do recognise the cons. From an environmental point of view, um, I guess the embodied energy in these panels to get to site is probably higher than a typical stick-built construction. However, I would argue that because these buildings perform so well over the life of the homes, you know, we're building these homes for 60-plus years, the embodied energy that goes into putting the structure up um, if you look at a building's life cycle, the carbon usage at the beginning is such a small part of the carbon usage throughout the whole use of the home. So if these homes, if we're building to passive house standard, are 90% more efficient than a code-built home, 
um, you can see that your buyback on that initial carbon investment is going to be bought back, you know, well, well within the lifestyle of that lifestyle, um, lifetime of that home. You know, and we get to work with great contractors as well. We've got really great relationships with these, um, with, with, our, with our suppliers and installers. And um, yeah, it's just a really quick, um, very satisfying way to build a home. Do you find that homeowners come to you wanting to use SIP specifically and they've seen you doing it on another project? Or do you find that because you're involved during pre-construction, working with, you know, a, a, a set of designers that you have established relationships with, do you find that you're sort of leading the conversation and proposing it as an alternative to um, something that they might be considering? Like how does that whole material conversation sort of roll out in your experience with the projects that you're doing? So if we're talking about superstructure specifically, so just the, the structure of the home, I would say that most people that get in contact to, with us are generally after a specific solution, and that is passive house high performance. Um, so they're going to know about SITs. It's not necessarily something that they're set on, and from our point of view, it's not something we're set on either for every project. Um, we'll always explore it with the clients and talk to them about the pros and cons. Some sites just don't lend itself to SIPs construction. Um, you know, there might be complex, tight access, you know, cranes, not possible. But if access is good and the site's good, then we'll always explore it as, a, as an option. Or we might look at a hybrid approach where we'll, you know, do some, uh, you know, intermediate um, floor systems. You know, the, 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 the house might have a slope, the block might have a slope and we might have to, Put a floor system down or it might be double level or it might be on a boundary where you know sips don't quite work from a fire rating point of view the home that was talking about before the dual lock one you know we're going to have a typical um stud frame down the middle of it so we can get that zero lot um requirement satisfied it, it, I'm just going to translate. So dual dual occupancy. So it's got a shared wall down the boundary line, which needs to be fire rated. So therefore, you you um, can't achieve that with SIP. So you need to do that with traditional wall construction, so that you can then have the required fire rating and fire separation between those two separate homes. So yeah, yeah, and and ninety percent of our ninety nine percent of the SIP homes we build all have um, typical stud frame walls inside because it, it makes it a lot easier from a rough-in point of view and it's far more cost-effective. You know, we don't need really to have the, the structurally insulated panels inside. It's, it's of no advantage. If we think about the external walls as our thermal envelope of what's helping, you know, manage that internal air environment, we don't necessarily need internal ins insulation unless it's something the clients want from an acoustic point of view. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. Uh, you've touched on obviously some of the things to consider when it comes to SIPs. Can we just dive in a bit more? Because obviously you're working with people during pre-construction and a lot of the time that whenever I'm speaking to Home Method members who want to use SIPs, they, they will ask me what I think of it. And my response always is, if you're going to do SIPs, it's something you probably need to commit to fairly early on because designing efficiently, knowing that you've got SIPs um, means that you can obviously incorporate certain design constraints and those kinds of things. 
It also means that you probably want to be having a conversation uh, with a SIP supplier and with somebody who's going to install it so that you can know that the house is going to be streamlined for that. You're going to have different lead times to deal with. And that may mean that you have to make a choice now about who you're going to be working with. And for some people, they want to have more options than that. They feel that they're going to lose some competitive advantage by just working with one supplier and installer, you know, for this product. And so a lot of people do um, make a call that no, they'd rather use something that's more conventionally available, uh, you know, be able to weigh up then different price points and different products against each other than commit to this one product early. However, if you're working through the pre-construction or the pack process with a builder, I think it really does um, make sense to make a decision early on your material and it's only if big red flags start going off in terms of timelines and supplies and those kinds of things that you can then look at whether you, you change to something else. So if somebody is wanting to build with SIPs, what are your general recommendations to them in terms of thinking about does it change the design of the house? Does it change the kinds of products that they have to use for their windows? Does it change, you know, uh, the wall thicknesses, the reveals, you know, and, and the considerations for the design and construction, you mentioned site accessibility, cranes, you know, all of those kinds of things. What, what are your main sort of top tips for people who are thinking of building with SIPs that they need to be aware of as part of that process? Okay, lots to unpack there again. Um, so, so, <laughs> I like asking media <laughs> questions. <laughs> so so you, you touched on pre-construction or pack process. Um, so we obviously follow that. And, and I'll speak on how we operate as a business. So we have a, um, like three different phases where we'll um, cost a project. The first phase is the concept stage. Um, and in that stage, the, the design is the, the floor plan or the, or the general layout of the home is set. The building methodology is not landed on at that particular point in time. Um, we can cost SIPs versus um, typical frame and see how that lands from a price point. Um, one of the only issues that we're finding at this particular point in time in, you know, May of 2022 is that prices are fluctuating so much. So, you know, we're giving a price at a particular point in time and we don't have a crystal ball to see what that looks like in six months' time or 12 months' time. Um, we, we, we would generally price a methodology in that first stage. So, say, for example, we're using, we, we want to cost SIPs, so we'll cost SIPs. The client doesn't necessarily have to make a decision at that point there, but at some point during our next phase, which is what we call our develop stage, they're going to want to make the decision that they're going to move forward with SIPs. And it's with that point that we actually bring our SIP supplier into the conversation, I guess, as another consultant within that design team. Um, and we will be problem solving and workshopping and doing shop drawings and everything through that design stage. So we can get to a point pretty quickly where the design stopped moving from a structural point of view. Um, and we would typically encourage our clients to pull out um, the manufacturing deposit pre-contract so we can get that into the SIP supplier overseas and get that starting you know, into manufacturing. Oh, um, right, okay. And we, yep. can, we can then circle back to the finer details like tile finishes and extent of joinery and all that kind of stuff um, while that process is happening because that's generally a four-month lead time from the moment we get it into the supplier or the manufacturer um, to the moment that we see it on site. So we'll try and work back from 
when we're anticipating getting to site uh, to a point in our pre-construction process where we're saying, right, we need to lock this away now. Um, let's pull that out of contract. Our clients will sign a small works contract with the supplier, um, pay a deposit, which will deduct off our, fee, our, our contract price. Um, and then we'll pick up the liability for the remainder of the costs um, from when we sign a deposit. And, you know, and that's generally, um, well, I think it's about 10 or 15% deposit up front that the clients need to pay to secure that, just so we don't have any lead time. Because if we're, if we're waiting for signed contracts deposits, then we've got at least four months from when we we're expecting to see these SIPs arrive on site. Now, we're generally factoring in a little bit more fat into that lead time now, particularly with availability and shipping times. Um, so that might look like five months. Um, but the quicker that um, clients can decide on using SIPs, the better. Um, but we just, our, our, our priority, if you look at our critical path, is making sure that the structure is has stopped moving. Because once that's in manufacturing, that's done. You know, we're... You know, we can't stop that, you know, that ball rolling. Um, and even though we can make some adjustments on site, our preference is that the SIPs arrive, they go up, windows go in and we crack on. Gotcha. So that would probably be the, the biggest consideration that I would uh, have clients look for or, or be aware of that we're going to want to bring that decision forward, you know, pretty quickly. But at least... We, we get some ideas around costs first. You know, we'll cost a SIP package and we might load it a little bit um, for projected ink price increases but when we go to sign a contract so we're not left with, you know, a price increase that's not expected. If it stays stable, awesome. We'll just take that comes off our um, contract price at the end uh, when we go to sign a contract. And these things, they obviously get shipped over. They uh, get brought out to site on the back of a flatbed truck as big panels and then get craned into location. And you're doing them for floors, walls and roof for the external building envelope. Is that correct? Yeah, generally always walls and roof, sometimes floors. We've got a project at the moment where it, it does have a bit of a slope. So part of it's a slab and part of it's a um, subfloor, a SIP subfloor. Um, our, our recommendation is not to have it between floors, though. So between ground floor and first floor for a couple of reasons. Um, running services is one thing. You end up getting quite a big cavity between, uh, well, quite a big um, space between floors. And you, you can't, you're going to lose height somewhere, whether it's the first floor or the ground floor. Uh, and it can get a little bit drummy. Okay, gotcha. And are these, how thick are these panels? Uh, again, depending on the climate, um, we're running 165 mil SIP floor on this particular project. But you know, uh, the project we've just completed in Kyneton last year, we had 265 mil thick walls and 310 thick roof, uh, and that's all to do with the climate. So every every site, um, if you're going for passive houses, needs to take that climate into consideration. That's chunky, isn't it? So obviously Huge. they're quite heavy when they're craned into location. And so is that whole process of the craning and um, is it going to require particular access to the site? I can imagine for you as a builder, that must be almost like putting a Meccano set together in terms of 
the strategic planning of that happening and happening seamlessly on site because obviously once you've got a crane there it's a pricey um, undertaking and you know you're wanting to make sure that that gets done quickly and smoothly so the whole shop drawing process I love that that you went through and explained how bringing forward that and pulling it out of the contract so that that order can go in um, quickly. I can imagine some listeners starting to get hives thinking about the fact that they have to make that decision about the structure and they can't change anything <laughs> from that point on. But also that's a really great forced kind of constraint to bring forward as much decision-making as you possibly can and then put that in place knowing that that's going to set up a streamlined construction process so that you can then start and things can flow smoothly as they need to. So, and so that that's really great to see, okay, that's when they come in. The shop drawing backwards and forwards, is that something that the designer is reviewing shop drawings and making sure? So for those who aren't aware, shop drawing is actually a drawing created by the manufacturer that basically shows how their material gets drawn um, and gets cut and gets uh, positioned. It might have um, screw holes in it. It might be whatever material it is. It's basically the almost like the manufacturer's cut sheet. And then the designer generally reviews the manufacturer's cut sheet to see that it does coordinate with the design and that there's nothing sort of missed in terms of what the finished design outcome is going to be so the design is navigating all of that and you're having a look at those shop drawings as well are you through that yeah, process all of it. yeah so so everybody's going to have a look at it um we would generally ask that the designer overlays their uh their files over the top of the shop drawings just to make sure everything lines up and then we would we would do a desktop review and that's getting your ruler out or jumping on blue beam or something like that just to make sure that you know, the size of the building is per architecturals, you know, making sure all the, you know, the grid lines are lining up to, you know, where we've all agreed that the grid lines are going to line up to. Um, generally for us, you know, for people listening, that our grid lines would generally dictate um, the perimeters of our buildings and we would generally go to frame um, and some insets or, or um, internal corners or re-entrant corners in a slab would have a um, grid line as well and it's just making sure that the grid lines are consistent across all drawings from architectural engineering to the um, the general arrangement um, drawings which are the SIPs drawings the shop drawings of the SIPs um, so there's a few people that are going to look at it um, ultimately we're leaning a little bit on the designer to to double check that because that's we feel they're in the best position to be able to do that on their computer programs, but we're, we're checking them manually as well. And have you ever had stuff ups? Have you ever had a panel arrive and it's completely wrong and then you have to worry about the four month lead time? Like how does that get navigated? Not, not, not catastrophic. No, not catastrophic. I mean, the, the, the SIPs, the SIPs are adjust, like you can adjust them, right? Like they're, they're just OSB, two, two, two layers of OSB with foam in the middle of it. Um, now, there are actually structural elements within that frame, particularly where there's openings. Um, and I guess it's just discussions to have with the engineer, the certifying engineer on the project, if we do need to make adjustments. But, you know, if they're just blank panels that need to be um, made smaller or maybe an opening needs to be made a bit wider or taller, um, there's just conversations we'd have with the engineer on site that would gotcha. just adjust that. Yeah. So... Yeah, don't don't get too scared off that it's a structure that can't, you know, be adjusted on site. Um, I mean, I, Dave from Fencer and Panels told me of times where they've wanted to cut new windows into blank panels, and that's that can be done. 
Okay. And is the design, so you obviously are applying SIPs to a design that's already done. Does anybody, is anybody, are there design constraints with how you work with these things? Like, do you need to design the house a certain way in order to accommodate SIPs? Or do you find that SIPs can apply to pretty much any design sort of approach? Or do you find that the passive house is actually kind of what's driving the design? Because obviously passive house, you don't want too many corners and things like that. So yeah, although the, 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 the project that I stayed, one of our, we've just finished building one of our friends' place. Uh, well, I was telling you before we started, I stayed there over the weekend and there's a big curved wall in that particular project, which we did out of SIPs and there was a lot more timber in that curve, but that was all modelled in PHPP and satisfied um, the thermal bridging analysis there. Um, I mean, obviously, like the simpler form a building is generally the more cost effective it is to build, mm-hmm. whether that's a stick frame um, or a panel construction, whether that's CLT or, um, you know, HBE, which is a CLT is cross laminated timber, HBE is more directional slabs, um, generally coming 560 mil wide. Um, yeah, the, I guess the simpler the building form, the better, but, you know, throw a bit of geometry at it, throw some curves at it, anything could be done, um, but obviously the cost will go up a little bit. But, um, yeah, it's not restrictive in saying you can't build a certain way. Okay. No, that's awesome. I could keep talking to you about SIPs for a very long time, but I do want to get onto (laughs) onto hempcrete. (laughs) Because I am curious about the whole embodied energy conversation, but that's something that we probably have to dive into at another time. Well, just, just, I mean, quickly on that, I I know there has been some people that have done some, I guess, life cycle analysis on buildings. um, And I know Dave's got some really great information uh, on, you know, the embodied energy. from fenced panels. From fenced on panels, Yeah. I mean, whether or not, you know, his information might be a little bit more skewed towards, you know, um, getting more people across the line. But I'm comfortable in my mind and heart that, um, you know, the embodied energy that goes into these buildings will be paid back over the life of the home. Um, But you've got to think about if if you're making a 140 frame, we've still got to fill that with stuff. We've still got to put, you know, our internal um, air tightness barriers on that which you're not having to do with SIPs, you know. So there are, you know, there's pushing and pulling on both. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's an interesting exercise. I When I went to the uh, American Institute of Architects conference in New York in 2018, I attended a, a keynote there where they were talking about, they had graphs on uh, that were showing that uh, back then, the modeling showed that if we didn't actually start paying attention to the embodied energy in any construction, we weren't going to meet 2030 targets and 2050 targets. They, they said for a long time, we've been so focused on the operational energy of buildings. And this is looking across all sectors of construction, but we've been so focused on the operational energy of, of buildings, but the climate crisis has got so urgent that we're not going, we don't have enough runway for that to be the solution. So therefore the embodied energy of buildings is, um, is just as critical, if not more critical in terms of looking particularly at the embodied carbon as well. So it is, it's a fascinating one for, 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 that's a much bigger conversation. I do want to talk about hempcrete though, because you're obviously building this. What a a, a great segue into um, building a home out of hempcrete. (laughs) Yeah, because it sequesters carbon. Uh, I'm sorry to cut you off just there. Hamish is right. That part of the conversation, it is a really good segue into hempcrete and talking about embodied energy and sequestration 
sequestering carbon. And that's why I saved it for part two, because this conversation goes on for a lot longer. So that's actually it for part one of my conversation with Hamish. You're going to have to wait till next time to hear the rest of our chat. I do hope that you found all of that information though really helpful so far. I think the detail that Hamish shared about structural insulated, uh, insulated panels or SIPs is so fantastic for anyone considering it in their future homes building materials. I get lots of questions about SIPs, so hopefully you found that uh, super informative and also really interesting as well if it's something you've not even come across or considered yet. Make sure you join me next time because Hamish and I are going to talk more about sustainable building and especially about hempcrete. Hamish has been learning a lot about hempcrete from working with it as a material on a current project, especially as he seeks to create the first passive house certified hempcrete home in what he believes to be Australia and New Zealand and one of the few worldwide. So we talk about that and we also go through the non-negotiables of a high performance home and what that needs to include. And also Hamish will talk more about Builders Declare so that you can learn more about that as well. Now remember you can access a free downloadable PDF transcript of this episode by heading to www.undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 239 that's the numbers 239 i've also got links there so you can learn more about hamish and sanctum homes uh, also builders declare and their resources and i've got more information on learning more about passive house uh, from season eight of the podcast and also about building for your climate as well now the webinars that builders declare run they are free they're all they're very low cost they're also published on their youtube channel I've as I said I've got a link for that in the resources uh, so it's a really great resource I really encourage you to check it out because you can access industry insider information on building with certain materials building with certain methodologies really understanding specific things about the construction of your home and that perspective from a builder's point of view can be really handy for you to understand it more uh, if you're a homeowner and if you're an industry professional listening to this podcast I really do encourage you to check out those educational resources make sure that you tune in next time for part two of my conversation with Hamish. It's packed full of really useful information. And as always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye. Bye.